Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. According to the science writer and polymathic thinker James Gleick, H.G. Wells was the first to combine the words time and travel, thus creating an entirely new mode of thought. His latest book, Time Traveller History, distills literary criticism, philosophy and physics in an investigation of our obsession with its moving, bending and twisting. The multi-award winning author of Isaac Newton, Chaos, Making a New Science and The Information, A History, A Theory, A Flood, discusses the writing of science and why, sadly, time travel does not and cannot exist, in conversation with Graham Hill. This session was supported by Royal Society Te Aparangi. We hope you enjoy it. Good evening, everybody. I've got stuff. So I'll just put it down. We're going to be talking about time travel with James Glick. He'll be here very shortly. There's something I have to do first for those that maybe from the future are watching this backwards. So if you get that on tape later, it'll all make sense. There's a little housekeeping to do. First, cell phones off, of course, we all know it, but we often forget, and uh, there'll be book signings after. Thank you very much to our sponsors. Do support them, and thanks to you for coming along. And thanks to the Writers' Fest. Man, they do a good job. Um, I get nothing but uh, positives from both those uh, that are presenting and and the guests from here and overseas. So thanks very much to all those that are organising it. Um, I should tell you who I am. I do a radio show on Radio Live. I have for a long time. It's a bit of an independent republic. We do tons of really serious sciencey stuff, culture, and that sort of thing. It's uh, at the much sought after eight till midnight slot Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> It is online as well, um, and so I suppose just sharing the love, if you're into that stuff, um, do tune in, because you're here to see James Glick. James, a tremendous science writer, a bit of a wecker in some ways. He just searches through so much stuff, is so well read about his subjects, and he can bring science writing together with scientists, and culture and literature. He wrote that great book, Chaos, a book on the wonderful, affable, marvelous Richard Feynman, uh, the book Information as well. But his latest book is what we're going to concentrate on mostly because it's that subject, time travel, and that's what it's called. The immensely popular and eminently thought-provoking, James Glick. Thank you for all that, Graham. No worries. Um, it's kind of hard to see you cats out there. I want to know right away, though, if there's a bit of a show of hands. Is it possible? Just for the house lights now, before we hit this, I want a show of hands. Can we get some up? Um, who's got a question now? Who's got, who's got questions ready that they want to ask James? Because I want to leave as much uh, time at the end as is appropriate. Who's got questions to ask? No pressure. No pressure? Okay, okay. we'll just see no. how it goes. One, two, three. Okay, good. I'll 
keep that in mind. Thank you very much. Lighting people. I think you've terrified them. Have I? (laughs) (laughs) All right. First up, I want to ask you something, uh, not about the time travel book. It's because I've got you on a leash. It's about Isaac Newton. You were a biographer of of Isaac Newton, um, in as much as you can be, and Principia, he went into a room with not much before him, really, and worked out how the universe works in many ways, in so many ways, and that is almost miraculous. I can't get my head around how one person could have come up with all that. It's a more miraculous thing than anything from Revelation I've ever heard. How come? I feel the same way. And that's the, that's the central mystery of Isaac Newton. That's the central mystery I tried to deal with in the book that um, you have, you've hardly exaggerated it. He's, a, he's, he's a practically a kid and he's home from, He's home from university because the university is shut down for the plague and he's alone in a farmhouse and he's got a a big notebook that his stepfather has left him and that's the only paper he has. It's it's many empty pages and he's got a pen and ink and he works out the calculus and he works out the laws of motion and, and we've made up a story to explain it that is, I shouldn't say we've made it up. A story has been passed down to us to explain it that sometimes we cling to, and that's the story of the apple in the in the backyard. And there was an there was an apple tree. I went I went to his his house in Lincolnshire and saw what they say is a descendant of the apple tree. And if maybe this is a cheesy segue, but I wish I had a time machine for this. I mean, I really wish I I could ask him because because the impossible thing about writing about someone almost 400 years ago is how different the world was, how different the state of his knowledge was going in from, from what's available to any of us now. I mean, he, we say that he discovered gravity or invented gravity or he really discovered gravity, which, which already doesn't make sense because we all know there's gravity or that is we know that stuff, you know, hold out your arm and you can feel the pull of gravity, but, but they couldn't feel the pull of gravity because they didn't know there was an invisible force. They thought, what they thought was very hard to, figure out. It's hard to, when you write about the distant past, it's hard to subtract everything that we know because they taught us. So that's a, that's a timey-wimey thing right there. <laughs> a timey-wimey thing, yeah. You caught that reference, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, that'll come up again, I think. All right, to the time machine. Um, H.G. Wells is the launching point and it's almost a challenge, isn't it? It, it? it felt like a challenge to me when you said H.G. Wells, the first person to really think about 
and write about time travel as we know it and we're kind of familiar with it today. And so you go, oh, no, it can't be, can't be thinking, thinking, the revelation of John, um, those sort of things. Um, Has anybody come up with an example that refutes H.G. Wells as the real launching point of the idea of time travel? Well, yes and no. Every, that's everybody's feeling. Is uh, I say H.G. Wells invented time travel. Time travel didn't exist before H.G. Wells. And then um, it's completely automatic, I think, to feel that can't be, that can't be true. I mean, that's that's wh- how I felt. I mean, that's sort of why I thought to put it the other way around. The reason I thought there was a book to be written was that I realized that that was the case. And that was astonishing in itself. It seems astonishing. It seems astonishing because we wake up with the idea of time travel already embedded in us. We know all about time travel. I mean, I know six-year-olds who argue about time travel paradoxes over breakfast. Mm. You know, um, We grew up with it. H.G. Wells didn't grow up with it, and yes, there are things that come before H.G. Wells that we can argue were a kind of time travel. There's Rip Van Winkle falling asleep and waking up in the future, and then there are ancient Japanese legends where someone falls asleep for a thousand years, and that's a kind of time travel. And if you want to argue the point, you could say that the ancient Greeks going down to the land of the dead and crossing the river Styx, do I have that right? and meeting meeting their ancestors, that's a kind of time travelish thing. But then you can look in the OED, the the authoritative historical dictionary of English for the phrase time travel, and it doesn't appear until the 20th century. And it's a back formation from the time traveler who is H.G. Wells' hero. So, so I'm going to I'm going to stand by my story. Well, it's interesting to wonder why then, isn't it? And that's yes. what's a, a, a good thrust of the book. Why then? Because the world industrial revolution, things moving so quickly that the idea of change was worth thinking about. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. That that really for the first time. I mean, I'm using first time in a kind of broad sense, beginning with the industrial revolution. For the first time, people were asking, people were aware that life was changing. It would make sense to ask, what's life going to be like for your, for your children and grandchildren? How is the world going to be different? Because suddenly in England, there are telegraph wires stretching across the landscape and railroad trains whizzing past farms. And everybody was hyper-conscious of things changing. And, and the century was coming to an end. The 19th century was coming to an end. And, and there are all kinds of, um, there were celebrations at the turn of the century and there was also speculation about what was the year 2000 going to be like. And in France, Jules Verne, the, sci- the really first science fiction writer, was imagining the future and the new technologies and you know people were dreaming of flying cars and a lot of things that, that have come true and, and a few things that haven't come true. Yeah. But so think about, put yourself in H.G. Wells's shoes as someone, he's a young man, fresh out of, fresh out of school, 
And he's, he's never written a book before and he wants to imagine a kind of fantastic story and set it in the future because he is interested in partly politically as a socialist in talking about what the future might be like. And he's been a geology student and, and, a, and a student of evolution at the normal school in London. And so he also is aware of, of change over long periods of time and wants to speculate about the future. But so now he has a problem. How do you get there? He doesn't just want to you know, write a story where it's set in the future. He wants to take his hero from modern day London and transport him to the future. So now he invents a machine. Oh. And it's, it's crazy, it's, a, it's wacky. It, you read, I know a lot of people in this audience have read The Time Machine. And if you haven't read it, you probably think you've read it anyway because because of all the movies that have been made directly from the book or around it. And, oh. But when you go back and you read it again, at least I was, I was amazed at how almost, how sketchy the description of the actual machine was. Just some rods, some quartz rods, and a lever, and a saddle, and, and I, not like the time machine that I had in my head from the movie. Um, which is much fancier and much more of a vehicle. And I suddenly, I suddenly realized this is just a bicycle. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a fancy bi it's a fancy bicycle that H.G. Wells is describing. And luckily, it turns out that H.G. Wells was, in fact, an avid bicycler. Mm. Um, the idea of writing about time travel is so much about, it, it's really, how do you think things are going to work out? It's uh, salutary tales about it might turn out badly, it might turn out well, all these different um, scenarios. So it, it's not that much different from something like, I don't know, 1984, but without the machine. Without the machine, as long as you're thinking about the future. Right. But then, once, once there was a machine in the world, that is in our imaginations, yeah. people started all hell broke, broke loose, really. I mean, this new genre of time travel was born, and it had to be created all over the place in different countries. And in the US, it was created by young writers working for pulp magazines for pennies. And, and everybody knew what had gone before and tried to do something different. And so some people started sending people back to the past. And some people, instead of a machine, used a clock where the hands would start running backwards or a magic portal or um, there's a magic amulet that's used by an English writer of children's books who's, who sent her kids to the past only. Mm. And they did, you know, fantastic history. So, um, You've got this technology, it's a technology, it's a machinery of generating culture. It's a machinery of imagination. And even if nobody had a real machine, the culture had hundreds of machines to, to work with and experiment with. I suspect most of us would be probably um, more familiar with the movie, the images from the movie, than the book itself, I'm assuming that. But just briefly, are there any important bits that are things that are differences between the movie 
and, and the book that you'd like to go into bat for H.G. Wells? Well, the truth is, maybe I shouldn't admit this, once I got past the machine, I didn't care that much about hmm. the rest of the book. I mean, there's a very complicated plot involving Morlocks and Eloy, and I think I have that right. And there's a, there's a, woman, of, a woman of the future, a girl named Weena, who becomes a sort of love interest. And so a difference in the movie is that the love interest is much more important. The movie, I'm talking, there's more than one movie, but I'm, the one I'm thinking of is the 1960 movie directed by George Powell with um, Rod, Rod Taylor, Taylor. Handsome and somewhat unconvincing <laughs> as a, it doesn't seem all that intelligent. Yeah. I don't think. But, and Weena is played by Yvette Mimieux, and it's very, it's not the way I imagined it f exactly from reading the book, but, yeah. but the movie probably made a lot more money, at, at least at first. Science fiction to science fact and physics um, it wasn't far after 1985, it's just, oh, it may as well be the same time in history. Hello, Einstein, and much earlier than most people um, have in their mind's eye, I think. Einstein was a young man when he came up with relativity, um, general and special. And, and yet H.G. Wells was before that. Yes. And is, is there anything in the air yes, that, this that is... connects these two? Because I, they didn't know each other, did they? No, they didn't. I mean, I would have loved to. I actually did sort of hope that I would find out that Einstein had read The Time Machine in mm -hmm. some way, which I guess isn't completely impossible, but it's not too likely because Einstein was, was well, in, it may not well he was German, Einstein. he was German to begin with. Yeah. But there is a, this very weird and exciting thing that I think I should point out, which is that the scientific explanation that begins The Time Machine, this is where H.G. Wells felt I need to justify this machine. I need to explain the machine or nobody's going to believe it. And so the beginning of the book is completely didactic. It's the time traveler explaining painstakingly to his friends gathered in his drawing room that everything they think they know about time is wrong. And what is time? Well, time is just a fourth dimension, like the three dimensions that we know only in a harder to imagine direction. And so duration is a dimension. And he explains that you sort of already know that because look at, look at the line that's drawn on, on a paper by a machine charting the change in temperature, you know, or the change in air pressure. That's, that dimension is time. And it's true that going all the way back, well, back to Newton again and to Descartes, Mathematicians had been visualizing time as a dimension. But as you say, it was 10 years later that Einstein established or stated convincingly, convincingly enough that we all, I think, take it for granted that yes, time is a, four, a fourth dimension and the whole universe is a four-dimensional space-time continuum. And it is malleable and time travel is real. It happens. Well, yes and no. Uh-huh. 
if my, in minuscule amounts, if, if, if my hand is aging slower than my head, oh, yes, because that's true. It's moving in relative to this. Okay, your your point is that Einstein established that that if you move at high speeds, and especially if you get close to the speed of light, your individual clock which is separate, there is no, no more absolute universal clock as Newton had imagined. So there, Newton got it all wrong. Yeah. Um, your clock operates more slowly than the clock of someone who you've left behind and is stationary. And likewise, if you, if you travel through a, a, a deep gravitational field, such as near a black hole, um, your clock slows down. And all of this should be sounding familiar to, to anyone who saw Interstellar a couple of years ago because they make, they make very good use of this. Um, and any physicist will tell you that that's absolutely real and it's been established. And when an astronaut spends a, a year or two orbiting the Earth at pretty high speed, he comes back down and he has aged a, a fraction of a second less than if he had stayed behind. And so, okay, you can say that's time travel, but it's a pretty disappointing kind of time travel, isn't it? I mean, I mean we can speed that up. There's no the reason why um, someone couldn't, if we had the technology, and I can't see why not, travel a vast distance at a better the speed should. of light, yeah. come back and Oh boy, you got noticeable time travel there. Well, that's that's true, and I already knew that. I remember a, a, a time travel story I read when I was a kid. Um, I think it I think it was a book called Time for the Stars by Robert Heinlein. I can, we can't see the audience, so I don't know if, if anybody's nodding or shaking their heads. But but the gimmick here is there are twins, because after all, Einstein described this in terms of the twins paradox or the twins effect. So twins was already in the air and Heinlein imagined literal twin brothers and they are telepaths and one of them goes away on the starship and because they're telepaths they're in communication but you have the effect of, the, of one brother's voice slowing down like you slow down the record and the other one's speeding up until it becomes unintelligible and then finally um, at the end, the one who's traveled in space comes back down and marries his grand niece. That's possible. <laughs> Some parts of it might be possible. GPS, satellites, they're yeah. going fast enough far away from the, the center oh, yes, of gravity. Oh yes, all of that is true. They but, have to alter for time. But as I say, it's not, we don't feel that that's real time travel because it's one way and it's really just at least I think it's disappointing because yes, you can do it. You can do it once. You can, you can let the rest of the world go by quickly while you slow down. And then, I mean, this is, in effect, this is how um, Woody Allen travels into the future in Sleeper, and which is Rip Van Winkle updated. Mm. Right? He wakes up, and now it's a hundred years later, or however much later, and there are giant vegetables, and people are having sex in machines instead of in person. Nobody's, nobody's laughing. Maybe that movie didn't make it to New Zealand. <laughs> but, 
what we really want is to be able to go, go back. We want to be able to travel to the future and come yeah. back, or travel to the past yeah. and come back to the future, and that, I, that I'm afraid is not, is not going to be possible. Right. You, you seem very certain about that. I, don't, I can't figure it. I haven't heard a convincing way that it could be done. And a lot of people think about it, but that comes to this number one question. This is probably Merlot number two at one in the morning at, at a college campus. That's a damn good question. We have dimensions, one dimension, two dimension, three dimension. We can point that way or that way or that way or that way, that way. That. Time, why the hell to us is it ratcheted in one way? Right. We can't get, you can't go the other way. What the hell's going on? You want, my, you want my answer to that? You will... <laughs> I've got the book. We could start reading. All right. Uh, you know, there, there are different ways to answer that question. There's a, there's a kind of um, idiot's way of answering it, <laughs> which, is, which, is my, which is the answer I believe in, seriously. Okay. And that is this. Before H.G. Wells, before Einstein, before we got into this time as a fourth dimension thing, yeah. there, that problem didn't exist. Everybody knew that time only went in one direction. You didn't have to ask that question. It, it didn't come up. Um, we, we knew what the man in the street, as physicists condescendingly call this imaginary person now, knows, that the past is gone. You don't have access to it anymore. It happened, it's over, it's gone. The future is not yet available. The future has not happened, and many different things can happen. Maybe not anything, but a lot of things. It's open. All that is knowable to us at this instant is the present, and the present is going by very quickly. You know, I said the present a second ago, and it's already the, that was already that's already in the past, oh. and you don't have access to it unless you rewind the tape. So, the problem you're the question you're asking, which is a very profound question, as you know, asked by many physicists, doesn't exist until you convince yourself. That, that Einstein, Einstein's view and Minkowski's view and the view of all of these characters that w our universe is a four-dimensional object, until you accept that, you don't have a problem. If you accept that, then suddenly, as you say, the problem arises. Okay, you say time is just a fourth dimension. Why do we have this persistent impression that we can only move through it in one direction, and you can't go backwards. You can't rewind the tape except by rewinding the tape. And physicists have ways of talking about that. They talk about entropy. They talk about the um, natural tendency in any complicated system, any macroscopic system in the universe, for orderly things to break down and become more disorderly. You know, you build a sandcastle, and then you leave it alone, and, if, and it's going to get knocked down. And the sandcastle does not spontaneously emerge. Order doesn't spontaneously emerge from disorder without some active agent interfering. And that's, that's a, a universal thing. I mean, that's, the, that's what, what we know as the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy only runs one, one way. 
Um, is entropy and time then inextricably linked? It's hard, I can't get my head around, is one the cause of the other, perhaps? And people have thought about that I don't, with no great answer. No, well, physicists fall back on this expression, the arrow of time, and the arrow of time is created by entropy, it's created by, by thermodynamics, and those things are hard to reconcile in physics. This is, this is an active issue in physics. How do you reconcile um, what we know from thermodynamics, that there is a preferred direction to processes in the universe with this very powerful, effective view um, of fundamental theoretical phys physics that you can talk about the universe as a four-dimensional space-time continuum. That's an unsolved problem, I think. Oh. And as I say, the way to make it go away is to adopt the idiot's view that the four-dimensional model is just a model. It's convenient for calculating. It's great, it's a handy tool for physicists, but it is not necessarily the be-all be and end-all if you're trying to explain what reality is. Right. Um, although those models do some astoundingly exquisite predictions that we never knew they were going to be able to do, and they do. It's how so much of our modern world works. Uh, they are beautifully accurate. That's and you can run them true. backwards. And they do have, you know, Feynman, who you've written eloquently about, I mean, you know, he's got things going back in time arriving before they pop out at a subatomic level. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's why it is, there is this tension because the laws of motion, Newton's laws of motion, which, which, with which you so cleverly began this discussion, work just as well backwards as they do forwards. That's the, that's the problem. If you take a, take a motion picture of some billiard balls bouncing around a table, which is you know, another way of saying a motion picture of, um, of molecules of gas in a box, you can run the film forwards or backwards, and it looks exactly the same. But if, if, you, if the billiard balls start out in a perfect you know, triangle, as they do, and then they're hit by the cue ball, and then they carry them around, and then you run that film backwards, and you've got a bunch of billiard balls obeying Newton's laws all the time until the very end when suddenly they gather into a nice triangle, at that point you laugh because you know that that can't happen. Mm. So why can't it happen? Well, somebody like Feynman would say, um, it's just a matter of chance. It's a matter of randomness. It's a, it's a matter of the accidents of nature. It's, it's not that there's zero possibility of that happening, it's just that it's so close to zero that it might as well be. Hmm. I don't know if it's parallel. You get a shopping trolley, it's really hard to push backwards, isn't it? It's like, why doesn't it work the same way? I can't figure hmm. it out. Okay, head can explode with this subject. I... Some exemplars of science fiction writing um, or even you know, th thinking about things 
um, science writing when they think about proposals of time travel. Exemplars you could cite as rigorous thought. They've thought this through. This is, this is worth it because it is fraught with danger as soon as you start doing any time travel thing. All the right. paradoxes, of right. course. Yeah. Other exemplars, people I think have of, thought about it what more I, than others. What I basically feel is if you make it really plausible, I mean, some time travel stories, you really follow the argument, they go to a lot of trouble to make it work. They go to more trouble than H.G. Wells because it's gotten more complicated. And if you leave the movie theater or close the book feeling satisfied, feeling that that could actually happen, uh. I feel the author or screenwriter has pulled off a great trick. They have fooled you because it isn't really plausible. And I tend to, I tend to feel afterward that if I, think, if I really think it through, there is some bit of illogic lurking. I should start giving examples. Should I start giving? Can right. you like? Well, well, the problems always arise when you go back to the past. If you just travel to the future, you don't run into paradoxes. The paradoxes occur because if you travel to the past, you have to ask, can you change the past? And then if you change the past, which one happened, the original past or the one before you changed it? And, and I think everybody's heard of the grandfather paradox, which arose, speaking historically, early on in time travel history, around 1920, when there was a, an early pulp magazine in New York and they started printing some time travel stories, and a kid wrote in and said, you know, I've thought about this time travel thing and here's a problem. What if you could go back to the past with a gun and shoot your grandfather, and then you would never be born, and then you can't go back to the past and shoot your grandfather, so he's all right again. So, you know, how does that work out? And this is where your head starts exploding, or mine does. Um, and everybody grapples with Everybody grapples with that in one way or another if they, if they want to do that kind of story. You have knowledge. Sometimes it's just information that is sent to the past, but it changes things. You can avoid it by going to the past and then you're not allowed to change things. I mean, there are ways of kind of... When I get to this, when I get to this point, and my head starts spinning. It, well. it always reminds me of one of my favorite movie moments, which is um, Bruce Willis in the movie Looper, who plays a hitman. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, also in the movie Looper, plays the same person, but at a younger age. And so they, they meet. And I forget exactly why, but there's urgent business to attend to. And the older one, Bruce Willis, has to explain, has to get Joseph Gordon-Levitt with the program. But Joseph Gordon-Levitt's head is exploding. And he's saying, well, wait a second, you mean, and the Bruce Willis character says, look, if we're going to talk about time travel shit, we're going to be making diagrams with straws all afternoon. Yeah. Well, you do have to make diagrams. And sometimes you can make them work out, and sometimes you can't. Yeah. It's always that shoot Hitler thing, isn't it? Why is it always shoot? Why go back and convince a young Hitler that, you know, another way of life, you know, that'd be nice. Well, there you go. I mean, 
this is another thing that arises. It arises very early in 1941, I think is the first story where somebody says, let's, let's go back and try to kill Hitler. Right. Because, because that becomes the answer to the natural question that you might ask yourself. If I had a time machine and I could go back and do one thing to make the world better, what would I do? And um, now I know you're all thinking of some, of some different possibilities, but, <laughs> but for a long time in the 20th century, killing Hitler was the logical thing. Yeah. And, and it's a great problem because the paradoxes appear. Uh, should, why should you assume that killing Hitler is just gonna make everything all right? Okay. And, and then, in addition to the logical paradoxes, there's the demands of, of storytelling, and it kind of turns out that the stories are always better if something goes wrong. So oh. in most of the killing Hitler stories, either Hitler survives or somebody worse appears, or, you know, as, as we like to say, hilarity ensues. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a bit of... Uh, um a bit of friction, a bit of heat, I think, between philosophers and physicists on this subject. Stephen Hawking and uh, Kip Thorne and lots of physicists, you've probably all heard of the, the wormhole possibilities, way beyond any technology we could think of. But theoretically, I mean, there are these possibilities, yeah. um, including the multi-worlds um, idea. You're not buying them, are you? Not buying what? You, you're not buying that, that this comports to reality. That it's more of, it's a model that physicists use, but that's all it is. The story that I'm, that I'm trying to tell in this book partly takes place in the realm of science fiction writing, yeah. science fiction movies as a genre. It partly takes place in the realm of literature and art in, in a more general way because, because another thing that, that happened at the, in the early part of the 20th century is that the way the greatest writers like Joyce and Proust and Virginia Woolf told their stories and the things they were concerned about it's, it seemed to me, suddenly had everything to do with time and with, with new conceptions of time and with, and with um, the direction of narrative exploding. And then on another track, there are the scientists, starting with Einstein and then wrestling with questions of time all through the century. And on yet another track, there are the philosophers who, who um, by the end of the 19th century were somewhat overlapping with psychologists. I'm thinking of William James and Henri Bergson, who were both psychologists and philosophers, who were trying to understand time in a psychological way, and then were instantly lapped at the post, as it were, by Einstein, who, who acted as though their view of time was just irrelevant, and, and has, in you know, the halls of universities, made them appear mostly irrelevant. And so all of these things are going on. And I feel these domains of our culture are influencing one another. So the scientists are, whether they admit it or not, whether it was true of Einstein or not, it's certainly true now, they're reading science fiction and they're growing up in a world where time travel already exists. And 
the time travel writers or the fiction writers are also trying to keep up with what's really true in science, mm. what science is actually teaching us about the world. And there's a kind of ongoing argument, uh, more than one argument, a multi-layered argument that I en enjoy following. And um, yes, I have my preferences and they're things that I believe. You think but, and I, but I tend, you know, I've spent a career writing about science. I, I'm inclined to believe the scientists, I should say, but, but not out the window, you know, not always. Okay. And I admire scientists, uh, you know, we've already mentioned Feynman, this is something that he always expressed very clearly, who, who say science is never achieving or even should be striving for a final answer about the way the world is. We are trying to describe parts of reality and we can do that better and better and we can make a lot of prog progress. But, but we should always recognize that, that a great deal of the universe is going to remain unknowable. Those are the scientists I, who are most to my personal taste as, a, as an amateur who follows well. science. And luckily there are plenty of them. But there are other scientists who say our goal is to come up with a theory of everything that's going to explain the entire universe, and we're not that far from it. One would think that striving towards that has been an honorable thing, and it's given a lot of great results. As long as you put it in terms of striving, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, with some of these paradoxes, I mean, the, the hilarious things, um, the, there was a problem that Stephen Hawking came up with, um, where is this quote here? I think I can remember off the top of my head. There is some sort of, he suggests that because time is such an incontrovertible thing and you can't muck with it the way you want to, that there's some sort of universal time policing protection organization? Right, right. He imagined uh, to, to have to fix the problem of the paradoxes, he imagined there would have to be a, a chronological protection agency. That's it. And, you know, so the, the way, if you're, a, if you're a fiction writer and you want to express that in your art, you just make sure that when, when the kid goes back in time to kill her grandfather, um, the gun misfires, or she trips over the doorstep, or something else happens because you can't change the course of history. We, we know done. that. It's done. It's done and dusted. At, at, least, at least we feel that way. At least, you know, when you're writing science fiction stories, you can make up the rules. Yeah. You can, you know, you mentioned already the multiverses. There, that's another possibility that's, that you can explore. And that the idea there is that, okay, the universe just divides. And there's one history over here, but there's another, a whole another universe that is caused by this interference with the past. And this is a, a, a new science fiction trope that's being explored by William Gibson in his latest books. The, the last one was The Peripheral. Um, he talks about these alternate universes as stubs and they, the communication between them is very difficult and very partial but one of them is the original and one of them has been altered. And I, I know that, that 
uh, that Gibson is working on, because he's announced it, has, is working on an, another, a sequel, sort of sequel to the peripheral, in which in one version of the universe, Trump is the winner, and in the other version, he is not the winner. And which of those stubs we are lucky or unlucky enough to find ourselves in. That seemed remarkable, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a real challenge. And not only that, he was working on this book before the election yeah. Yeah. with full, the full expectation that the Trump stub was going to be the crazy and plausible one. <laughs> and uh, um, and the, now I, here we are. Yeah, here we are. It does seem science fiction-y. Um, and yeah. Bill Maher said a nice thing regarding time travel that uh, with the current administration, it's like living in dog years. Yeah. <laughs> so much happens all at once. Right. Isn't that the, is that the opposite of dog years? Isn't that hummingbird well, which, years? Whichever way it means that a lot happens yeah, in a short amount much. of time. It's too yeah. much to keep up. In fact, that during, the, during the 45 minutes we've been talking, I'm, I'm already, I have an itchy Twitter finger. Oh, are yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, James Click. Um, round of applause. Thank you. There'll be a book signing, I think. Well, I'm book signing books. Can I say thank you, thank you, Graham, and thank you, thank you all for coming, and thank you to this fabulous festival and Anne Enright and her incredible staff because it has really been inspiring to me and really Good fun one. to be here. So, Oh, and for people watching backwards in time, I have to do this. Um, so try that later. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.